to the Military Psychology Podcast Network, the Society for Military Psychology, Division 19 of the American Psychological Association, is producing several series applying psychological principles in military settings. We'll feature topics including diversity, consulting, behavioral health in the military and specialty areas, including operational aviation psychology. We address the question, what is military psychology? And answer it a number of ways. Follow the Society for Military Psychology at www.militarypsych.org. This episode is brought to you by Grid Energy Solutions, LLC, striving to enhance the resiliency and network recovery capabilities of the nation's electric power grid. Grid Energy's mission is to facilitate the restoration of the American electric power grid in the event of catastrophic failures resulting from natural events or human actions. For more information, please inquire at contact at grid-energy.com. Welcome back to our listeners. My name is Captain Tracy Began, and joining me today is Major Joseph Gomez. He's a physician assistant and he has quite an extensive history in the military. Thank you so much for joining us today, Major Gomez. Well, thank you for inviting me onto your podcast and giving me the opportunity to share my experiences with your audience. Kind of look forward to the discussion. So today the topic of discussion is about racial disparities in the delivery and access to care for medical services and mental health services. I'd like if you could start just to so our audience can get to know you a little bit better. Tell us a little bit about your experience in the military and a little bit about who you are. Kim Joseph Gomez. I am active duty Army. I am a major. Been in the Army for a little more than 22 years. I started off enlisted when I was 18 after like a semester in college. Decided that college wasn't right for me at the time, so I joined the Army. I started off as a lab tech. I did that for about 10 years. I was a specialty in cytology, right? cellular morphology, pap smears, tissue biopsies, autopsies, and such. And then I got an inter-service physician assistant program. It's the military's version of PA school. I was accepted into that program and completed that back in 2009. And I've been a physician assistant for the last 10 years. Been in infantry units. I've been in aviation units. I've deployed to Afghanistan. I've been a clinic chief for hospital um, in Kentucky. I was a clinic chief for the cadet summer training. So I've had all kinds of healthcare experience through the army. Um, forward and deployed infantry, airborne, aviation, hospital settings. So. It's been a very diverse experience, I guess you could say. So you've really had a number of years, two decades, being around the military medical system and have really had the opportunity to see how it's grown and changed and also being able to serve in those various leadership roles and positions in different units. Yeah, I also had the unfortunate experience of being a patient in the military health system. I was uh, shot in the head when I was deployed. And so I got to experience military medicine up close and personal from point of injury to evacuation to launch to a regional medical center all the way back to Walter Reed and going through their WTU process and some of their specialty care and some of their processes for that before I was sent back to my unit at Fort Drum at the time. So it was, again, it was a, I think, a perspective that it was an experience that gave me more perspective, I think, on military medicine than I had going before that experience. So I think that presented another window of how patients interact with their healthcare. And then especially from the military point of view, some of the processes and some of the hurdles and some of the challenges to navigate healthcare. I was a captain at the time. I've told people plenty of times that if I was not a physician assistant or a captain, I'd probably still be like trying to navigate through <laughs> the army medicine. So, uh, yeah. There are definitely some challenges that you have had some up close and personal experience with. 
And that's actually one of the reasons that I wanted to, and, and I'm so grateful you're willing to share some of your perspectives and insights. And I know that this is an area that you're very passionate about as far as bringing greater awareness and understanding to some of the challenges that minorities specifically face in accessing medical care. So sometimes when topics like this are brought up, there is kind of a bristling or a defensive posture about the level of care we bring. I don't think anyone ever intentionally says, hmm, how can we discriminate against patients today? How can we you know, limit access? That's not what we're talking about today. What we're talking about is those implicit biases that all of us have, but that really impact those systemic structures that are in place, such as in the medical field. Can you share with us a little bit about what are some of the challenges that minorities and specifically Black Americans face when trying to access medical care? So some of the challenges, I think in regards to like implicit biases, right? I think the huge challenge is the lack of representation from a person or a minority. So like in healthcare, there are African-Americans are underrepresented in a lot of the different professions, right? As a physician assistant, a black male physician assistant, there's like maybe 4% of us practicing, Mm -hmm. right? And so if my profession was designed to fill in the gaps, right? Doctors can't get to all the places. There's not enough of them. Let's design PAs to get there, right? And at the same time, we're not getting the representation in the minority communities. So it comes a challenge for a Black person to maybe necessarily relate to their provider. And so that becomes a challenge. And then your provider having a hard time relating to you and your perspective. You're an other from the beginning and like trying to bridge that gap and communicate to you critical information for your healthcare. There's an added layer of cultural differences. There's an added layer of bias that you have to overcome beyond the disease or the the injury. And so medicine in itself is challenging. And then you have to overcome obstacles of bias and unawareness and difficulty relating to your patient. And so I, I think that was one of the experiences that I learned from being a patient. A lot of the providers that I interacted with would always tell me how they understood what I was going through, right? And at the same time, like, how could you understand, like, the combat that I just experienced? You went to, like, you graduated from college, you went to medical school, and now you're practicing provider, and you really don't have much life experience, And so from a soldier's point of view, it's kind of like it's off-putting, right? And then I have to overcome like that mentality before I could really listen to what the provider was trying to tell me, especially from a behavioral health perspective. Like I didn't want to hear you understood uh, witnessing combat, experiencing combat, uh, some of the guilt, some of the isolation, some of the demons that I was fighting with. And you don't necessarily have that credible experience to relate to what I'm going through. And so culturally, like, again, you live on this side of town and I've lived on this side of town and I've had to experience racism since I was a kid, whereas it's never really a topic of conversation in the circles that you run in. How do you relate to me culturally, right? And then you're trying to tell me about, like, habits that I need to adopt in order to improve my health. And so it becomes all kinds of obstacles that run into when there's no cultural competence built into the system. I think that might have been a long-winded <laughs> like explanation. Um, no, I, sense. no, those were some really great points. And looking at one, medical providers, is there representation in our field? And we're looking at if there's only 4% of Black males or African-American males, and you're looking at what percentage of African-American males Black males serve in the military, that's disproportionate to what we're seeing. It's so like the, the IPAP or the, the military's PA program at the time I was going through had maybe 100 students in my class. We're the largest probably program in the country. And there was still, there was four 
African-Americans, I could African-American classmates, right? And then the class in front of me, there was maybe three. The class behind me, there was two. And so you're talking about out of like 300 people, you're still like not cracking 10 African-Americans going through the program, right? And so then how do you, when the general population in America is 14% African-Americans, how can you then culturally relate to that population? Hispanic population, again, is somewhere in the 20s, 25, 26% and then climbing. But again, their medical professions, they're like around 10%. And so as a healthcare system, it's really not designed or it's really not culturally relevant to a lot of people. So how do you then bridge those cultural gaps, communication gaps, language barriers? The science, like there's not much difference between my biology and your biology. There's some genetics and there's some like some markers, but like there's vast more similarities, genetically speaking, but there's infinite gaps in experiences and cultures that healthcare professions don't do really anything to address in their programs or curriculums and their recruiting and their enrollment. And so it just becomes a bigger disparity when you're trying to serve community and the outcomes become like exponentially different. So that brings up one of the other points you talked about in your experience as a patient is some of the disparities, right? And if you weren't a captain and if you weren't a PA, being able to navigate some of the outcomes that were disturbing to me when I was researching this topic is looking at how African-American children were prescribed pain medication less than white children antibiotics less than white children for the same symptoms, same level of pain, same presenting problem. But when you look at the data and what the treatment plan, what the, that's where we were seeing some disparities. And again, that's just data. It's not saying, you know, oh, well, this or that could have happened. But if you just look at the data across the board, it was pretty disturbing. Is that something you frequently see in your research as a physician assistant? It's, so it's something, so I worked in an acute care clinic and I worked in an ER when I was in Kentucky. Right? It was, again, it's in a military system. I didn't do any firsthand research when I was at Fort Knox about like the disparities between my prescribing and the prescribing of some of the other providers that, that wasn't done. What the perception is there and then some of the research that I've done outside, like it's just, you have the same access to care. Right. You have the same availability, but the treatment outcomes are different. And so the only thing that's really explainable is there is a difference in the race. Like, that's kind of like all that's left over. And I think there's like six or seven markers that the task force use, like infant mortality, breast cancer. And there, was, there was some other markers that I can't remember off the top of my head, but the disparity is... The treatment outcomes for African-Americans was worse, right? That's just the kind of like the bottom line. If all things else were equal and a white patient had breast cancer and a black patient had breast cancer, the treatment outcome, the treatment modalities were different, right? Same insurance, same like social economic status, but for whatever, that would be the only reason that kind of factored in is what I've seen in my research. And so how does that happen? Why is that the case? The, the research would suggest that there's the biases that factor into it, perceptions of how you prescribe, how you relate to that person. That's what I've, what I've come across in the research. The only difference between the outcomes has been like one person has been black, one person is white, one person has been brown, and one person has been white. And therein lies the difference in the outcomes. So how do you overcome that? That's kind of where I'm researching into now, how do you overcome that? The system is built to benefit one certain sector of the population. So how do you overcome that system and improve it so that it is race isn't really effective? So one of the terms that you used was developing cultural competence. Can you share with our audience what that means? Because sometimes that can feel so ambiguous or people can say, well, you know, I'm so woke, I've, you know, I've read these books or I've done these you know, online courses. I've listened to this podcast, but what does that really look like in practice? 
So for me, being a provider and a medical professional, I will see black, white, Spanish, Japanese, Chinese, all over the diaspora, right? And in my, my own personal experiences, I've also had interaction with those people outside of my professional career. And so I, I grew up in like a very diverse community. I've lived all over the world. 48, 49 of the states I've been to, visited, spent time in, have friends of different spectrums. And so I interact with people who are different than me, think different than me, don't vote the same way I do, right? Don't prefer the same meals or the same type of food. And so I think I have a little bit of, and then I've had to, like, again, I've had to actually confront racism. I've been called the N-word. I've been discriminated against. I've been profiled. And so I've had to reconcile those type of actions with my consciousness versus there are white people who have lived in a bubble of nothing but people who think their way, act their same way. They think the same activities are fun and interesting. And so when they're confronted with the problem of race, it doesn't necessarily compute that you may just have a difference of opinion, right? Versus like that person is a demon or that person is wrong, that person is criminal. They just think differently than you, right? And so how do you find common ground to explain a complicated medical treatment plan with a person? It could be something as simple as hypertension, right? Your blood pressure is too high for these reasons, right? If you don't necessarily know that they have these stressors, if you don't know that they have this type of eating habit, this type of sedentary lifestyle because of their culture, because of their family statuses, then you already are behind on like, how do you then prescribe a good plan of action for them to accompany COVID-19 is kind of unearthed in some of those things. Here in Hawaii, they have families that live together, generationally speaking, there's two or three generations living in the same household. And so you want to socially distance folks, or you're wondering why there are like outbreaks in certain communities, but you don't necessarily have the cultural understanding of that community to be able to speak to what they're experiencing and then like prescribe something that might be helpful to that community versus like stay six feet apart and like don't gather more than like groups of five or 10. Well, there's 15 of us in this house in the same generation, right? And we're all family and we all eat at the table because that's a culture, right? because we all get together at dinner despite whatever we may have going on throughout the day. And so medically speaking, you don't necessarily get that type of training in your curriculum, how to like address culture. It's not colorblind. Like you, I think that's been kind of like the, the trend is that like, I'm colorblind, I don't see race, and it shouldn't be a factor. So you don't address the race, you don't address the culture, and then you try to work in spite of, despite it. So it sounds like really being able to step out of your comfort zone, like you said, get out of your bubble. If your group of people that you are with is the same and think the same and that homogeneity, homogenous group of people, we know through research um, in, in behavioral health sciences that when we have diverse thought, diverse representation, we actually have better outcomes as far as problem solving, the speed in which problems solve, the ingenuity that happens, the creativity that happens in problem solving. And like you said, as medical professionals, if we're not doing that personally, we are limiting our ability to understand the complexities of our patients and making informed and ethical decisions on the treatment plans that we're recommending. So healthcare is not complex, right? The healthcare professions are not complex when it comes to culture. They're all kind of look insane. And like you can cookie cut probably most of the medical programs out there, the psychology programs, they all have like a template that they fit into right? versus the world that they try to treat is super complex, right? So there's no complexity built into like the cultural understanding of programs. And so you're left with a one-size-fit-all type of treatment, one-size-fit-most. And when it comes to cultural, like from the profession side of the house, from the education side of the house, from the treatment side of the house, it's 
monolithic, all looks the same, but you have a very complex world that you're trying to address the same treatment to. So what advice would you have to our listeners who maybe have had that experience where they grew up in, you know, maybe a middle class, predominantly white neighborhood, have not had a lot of diverse experiences? What advice would you give to them or resources that you could recommend to help them grow in their understanding of diversity and the impact of diversity in medical treatment? So what I've been researching was to try to help a school that was predominantly white, like, and then the kids who are African-Americans, onesies and twosies. And so what I found is that intergroup contact, right, is an easy way to build tolerance, right? If there is a diversity within groups, you don't necessarily have to have close contact in neighborhoods. You just have to have exposure to other ethnic groups, that reduces biases and tolerances and prejudices and discriminations. And so for the folks who have been segregated in enclaves for a good chunk of their experience, like how do you then build in contact indirectly, right? And so some of it has to go in the training and some of it has to be people willing to seek out those type of experiences. You can, there's ways to reduce bias within programs. like counter-stereotypical examples, right? Intergroup, build diversity within your community, build diversity within your programs, right? Seek out opportunities other than the white professor who is a male who has this Western education trained thought, right? Go look elsewhere for a guest speaker. Go have a discussion in a forum with someone who thinks differently of you friend the person on Facebook, right, who you came in contact with, who, again, is a different thinker, right? I'll turn on Fox News one day and I'll turn on CNN the other day. And the same story is totally different, but it gives you, instead of having an echo chamber of everyone thinking and talking the same, it gives you something to juxtapose, juxtapose and think a little deeper about. So really being able to grow as an individual, being able to be around and have exposure to diverse thoughts, diverse backgrounds. I think that can also help thicken your skin a little bit because then you are forced to kind of challenge, why do I believe? What do I believe? How did I formulate these values? Because oftentimes people talk about how their values bring them into a medical field or a helping profession. And so that can be challenged sometimes when you are out of your comfort zone and and it do have exposure to different thoughts, different ideas, but that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? That's how we grow and develop. So I find it interesting when some of my my Facebook friends will post something contrary to what I think and believe. I don't necessarily, like, I'm not going to call you a racist. I just think differently than maybe in this perspective. And let me challenge this thought. And like, maybe we can have a discussion and dialogue about your opinion. And here's my opinion. And then where's the common ground? And like, what are we trying to accomplish? Right? If we're trying to build discussion, that's one thing. If we're trying to talk about healthcare, right? Again, what's the, we want healthy individuals. We're looking for a treatment outcome that is good across the board versus like this treatment outcome is horrible for African Americans and it's good for white Americans. And so it's like, okay, you have this political opinion that's interesting, right? I'm not going to call you a racist. Maybe we could talk about like, again, providing access to care for more people, right, who are underserved or who are low income. That doesn't necessarily make me a radical socialist, Marxist, a human, horrible individual. It just, maybe I want to provide more care to people. And so having those type of discussions versus like everyone talks and thinks the same, like, oh, you have to let the market sort itself out. We don't need to provide healthcare for everyone. Or we need to provide health care for everyone. And like, you're just a greedy capitalist because you don't think I should have health care. You know? So being able to have those type of discussions and coming to a conclusion where it's common and you're taking care of the most good you can is kind of where I think we pivot into. 
So really listening for understanding, not listening to respond or to reinforce your own point and your own values, but really trying to listen to understand another person's point of view and perspective and where they're coming from. That is a more succinct way to say it, yeah. (laughs) So thinking about your experience as a African-American male in the PA program, and you had mentioned some of the experiences of racism you had when particularly I think white communities talk about racism or it's brought up this idea of, well, if you weren't in the wrong place, right? Okay, well, what's the right place for an African-American person to be if you were just cooperative? And well, that just happens in low SESs and there was probably something suspicious and you brought up, hey, I've been profiled before. I've been pulled over before for no reason. What is that like for you? You're an educated person. You are a military officer and you are experiencing these things on, you know, the frequency in which you experience them is concerning, right? Um, (laughs) (laughs) So this idea that, well, it's just, you know, people that are up to no good that are being stopped and people who are looking suspicious or fit a certain, well, they were looking for someone, there was a robbery suspect and you match that description. You know, oh, is that because I'm black? Is that the only descriptor that I match of that? What is that toll that that takes on you as an individual? And so it really depends on the the incident, the circumstance. When I was, I think I've matured and I have grown some resolve and I've grown some coping. You know, my faith has kind of like healed some of the the fractures that have been called caused by racism, you know, and by some of the discrimination. It, there was a point when I was younger where I was encountered with racism, like violence and racism. I'm being attacked because I'm black and no other reason. And it was made clear, it's explicit, like you're out to harm me because of the color of my skin and where I'm at at the time you encountered me. That fractured part of my consciousness where it's like I'm always looking at myself through the eyes of somebody else to make sure that I'm not doing something offensive or I'm not like, where am I going? I have to make sure I'm going to the right place at the right time with friends just in case something bad happens, right? And so that type of thinking develops and it's developed in me. I won't speak for all Black people, (laughs) but that type of thinking has developed in me. And as I have, again, I have access to, I'm a major, my wife's a doctor, she's a major. And so we have financial access to like a lot of resources. We live in neighborhoods that I couldn't afford when I was born black. We live in neighborhoods because we can afford to live there and they have a good school district for our kids to go to school in. And so sometimes, again, the profiling has been like, we don't expect you to be living in this neighborhood. Sometimes the racism that is encountered is my kids are facing uh, racism in school because they're the only black kid in that school. So looking for, I remember when we moved into Kentucky, like my thought process and my train of thought is to like, I have to look at the license plates around the area. Oh, I see a lot of different states, not just all Kentucky, right? There's a golf course down at the end of the road. And all of these cars, there are several different state cars. So this gives me the indication that it's a military-friendly community, right? And so there might be less profiling going on. It's a upper-scale, middle-class neighborhood, right? Oh, I know her. She works at HRC, so like she'll be okay. No, the neighbor across the street has a Texas tag, so he's probably in the military too because we're in Kentucky. Why do we have a Texas tag? And so those type of things you get factored into just where you're going to live. Where you're going to send your kids to school, right? And then when it comes to like where you work, like I was in charge of a clinic of people, white doctors, white nurse practitioners, white nurses, and if there's sometimes there was sometimes disagreements about policies that I put out into the clinic, and it becomes like hostile, right? Because I'm black, not because I disagree with you. I was accused of getting the job because I was black, as if like me being black 
benefited me getting into this position. I was like, holy cow, that'd be the first. <laughs> I'm usually discriminated out of jobs because of black versus like I got this job because I was black. It has nothing to do with my years of experience, a degree in business, a degree in leadership, a degree like 20 years in the army it has nothing to do with me being in this leadership position that the hospital commander put me in. And so those type of questions I have to address. Those type of things I have to factor into where I'm going to live, how I'm going to work. I get into a disagreement with a white nurse. I want to make sure that there's someone there to witness that I wasn't being aggressive, that I wasn't threatening her, that I wasn't trying to like intimidate her, because those are the accusations that will follow. Even if it's just a simple disagreement about like showing up to a, a group meeting, right? you think the meeting is not necessarily arbitrary. I'm telling you the meeting is part of MedCom policy and you feel intimidated because I disagree with you. You feel intimidated because this black man is this, right? But again, I brought an NCOIC with me and here's, here's his statement saying that it didn't do anything to intimidate and didn't threaten and he happens to be a white male. Captain Gomez was just talking about what we needed to talk about for the SOP and for the JACO commission that was coming and so those all kind of get factored into being a black male healthcare provider, you know, access to opportunities, but you may be the only one there. And so how do you navigate that in a safe environment for your kids? How do you navigate those type of things for your profession? And it could be draining, but at the same time, I've found, uh, I guess you could say the stamina right, through faith and family and there's people who support me going into those positions so that was probably really long but <laughs> it's kind of where my thinking goes yeah no that's perfect you know just asking about your personal experience and oftentimes we think of racism as happening to other people and not people we know and it's not as prevalent but when you really hear the personal impact that it has you can't ignore it anymore you can't just well you can you can choose to put your head you know, in the sand. And that's a choice though. You can't unknow what you know now. And so that's my hope that some of our listeners might give, hey, wait a second, let me rethink some of my thoughts about how people experience racism and how is it impacting my job as a medical provider or a healthcare worker? It's, I think it's, so I wonder how Sometimes white people actually look at race relations, right? Because my experience and your experience are totally different, right? And I've noticed that some of my peers who are white don't necessarily see race, right? So they don't necessarily have to encounter it. And when they do have to encounter topics of race, there's been the fragility or like, I don't want to talk about it, right? It's not an issue that I feel comfortable discussing and talking about. And so I think part of addressing some of the disparities is potentially building the stamina and the white community to be able to talk about racial issues. I think it's like a, it's something that white people don't necessarily have to think about how their race may dictate certain things, right? how, how they're not necessarily faced with racism, right? but the moment you call a white person a racist, like then you've hit a button that's sensitive. Right? When you potentially challenge a white person that they got there because of their white privilege, then you've hit a sensitive button, probably just as equivalent as calling the black person the N-word, right? It is to call a white person a racist. Oh, I've, again, same issues in Kentucky where my supervisor, she was white, and I didn't feel necessarily like she was supporting some of the decisions that I had to make for the clinic. And the perception that I was getting was that, yeah, like, I think it might have something to do with race, right? This white provider is telling you that these black nurses are like incompetent, but these black nurses have worked with several different providers and they've never had an issue. And this provider has had several issues, right? And I think we need to counsel and we need to do something because of this. There was always a shield or bubble placed around said provider. But the moment I am out of bounds with any of my metrics, then 
the hammer is being dropped. <laughs> and so it's just like, hey, like the same incident happened with said provider and I wanted to do counseling and you was like, no, we need to like smooth this over. Whereas again, this black provider is having the same issue and you guys dropped a hammer on thinking you might have an issue with race and you should have seen the look on this lieutenant colonel's face. She's like, I am not. <laughs> and I am, and she's flustered and she's red. And I'm just like, I'm just noticing the discrepancies and the only difference that I can really see is one was a black man, one was a female, a white female. That's the only difference that I can tease out. And I think you guys are really relating to the white female versus like you can't really relate to what this black male is going through. And so you're just trying to correct and discipline him versus like you're trying to empathize and like train and mentor said white female and i'm thinking your race might have something to do with it and it was like oh, oh it was so incredulous how could you suggest certain things i was <laughs> just like never mind forget i said that girl. forget forget i even mentioned it girl. that's just maybe me thinking outside the box well and like you said i have the privilege to either choose to engage in those conversations about race or not that's not something that minorities have the opportunity to do. It's there every day, constantly. They have to, like you said, it's built into your consciousness now. Hey, where am I going? Who am I going with? What time of day is it? Where are my kids at? What kind of experiences could they possibly have? And I don't have to worry about that as a white female. And the challenge is, if I were to acknowledge and say that statement, hey, I'm wondering if the only difference here, you know, that would be taken potentially very differently versus you as a black provider, as an African-American male saying, hey, I think there's an issue with race here potentially. And it's, well, you're just playing the race card and we have standards and they didn't meet the standard. Well, yeah, but this person didn't either. And you're trying to mentor and build them up. But this person, you're being punitive versus that mentoring relationship. And, and that's you know definitely one of the challenges that I've seen as well in training programs, just in different aspects that I've seen in the 20 years I've been around the military. And again, I think I do have to say that the military has been one of the more progressive institutions as far as integrating opportunities for leadership, for women, for minorities, and and more progressive if we look at overall. But there's still so much work to do. And how do we, just like you said, how do we bring that cultural competence piece to our education programs, to our officer development, to our leadership development programs, and for our providers who have gone through school and maybe they're you know, two decades removed from any educational piece and the diversity piece in education has really expounded in the last 20 years, thankfully, but also being cognizant that we still have work to do and we need to, how can we improve consistently? And, you know, sometimes people have said to me, well, the only reason there's an issue with race is because you're talking about race and you're making it an issue. But we know from the data and looking at, just like you said, the outcomes specifically for the Black community is we are seeing there are disparities in medical care. There are poor outcomes for things like breast cancer, diabetes, even for women who are giving birth. Infant mortality. Infant mortality rates and looking at how much pain medication that Black women are given or African American women are given. There's disparities there. That's numbers. That's data that we can look at. It's not feelings. It's not, it doesn't care about how you feel about it. It's numbers, it's data. And so it's our job to look at that and say, okay, what are we doing about it now? And and how are we addressing it? So there are people who are benefiting from it. And so that becomes the counter, that becomes the conversation that shuts down the conversations about race because there are people who are benefiting from the disparities in that outcome. I got my job in politics because I promised to be tougher on crime or to be like penny pincher when it comes to giving out social securities. Like, I I don't think we can afford health care and access to all of it. So why do I want to give these these Black people more money and access to health care when I told my constituents that I would tighten up the financial side of the house? So that becomes the counter to that discussion. Like there's just, there's objective measures that say there are poor outcomes. And so you have to then address 
you have to speak to that voice. Like I understand like it's going to cost more money, <laughs> right? But we're going to have better outcomes for everybody across the board. And here's a conversation about race, because again, there's a bias that you have objectively seen play out versus like, it's just not me saying that poor me, I'm black and you guys aren't treating me well. Like I can, there's hundreds of research projects, dissertations, books, task force that say there's a disparity. And so teaching the, the folks who are in programs, teaching cultural competence would be one start. And then the folks who've been removed from education, for, there's, there's no such thing as being removed from education. You go and you have a meeting and say, hey, guess what? <laughs> We're going to have this conversation about cultural competencies because it's affecting our bottom line. And our bottom line is treatment outcomes versus like the fiscal responsibilities of the hospital. We're not solvable, but you're a hospital, not a business. You know? You're a clinic. You're not a small business. You take care of patients. So thinking about the benefits when we have better health and healthcare outcomes for, and specifically in the military, right? Because we are all about readiness. We're mm-hmm. all about mission readiness, deployability, and being a fighting force that is ready to deploy around the world at the drop of a hat. And when we're thinking about the benefits of when we incorporate that education into our healthcare system, and we can start to change and shift, hopefully, those healthcare outcomes, it really does benefit the whole organization. And you're thinking, you know, as a human, that should be our goal as healthcare providers is to improve healthcare outcomes for everyone within our organization. Yeah, I think you're only going to be as strong as your weakest link, right? And so a pandemic will expose your weakest links, right? And so a COVID-19 type of pandemic that is slow spreading, it doesn't kill you in contact like Ebola, like it will progress throughout your community and it's going to test the integrity of some of your systems. When you say access, for everyone has equal access. What happens when you develop a vaccine and you only give the vaccine or the treatment to the people who can afford it and you leave the folks who can't afford it unvaccinated or untreated, they're going to continue to spread disease. And so you're going to end up with a situation like this in the army, you're only going to be as strong as your weakest private, right? If your private is a liability or if your captain is a liability because of his health, because of his situational awareness, then the enemy has just found access to exposure. In healthcare, culture and cultural diversity and cultural competency is a weakness, right? And disease like breast cancer doesn't discriminate. It will kill Unilateral will kill unequivocally whoever it infects. And you're seeing that, again, it's killing more black women than it is killing more white women. Why is that the case? Because of your treatment to these two different people. So your treatment modality is being exposed. You're not necessarily effectively treating African-American women the same way you are treating white women. So then your treatment has to include some level of race some level of cultural competency. If genetically they're both the same, there's not much differences in the content and the deposits of the melanin, then what is the reason why you're killing more black women than you are white women? It's because one is black and one is white and you're not treating them the same. You're prescribing different drugs, you're prescribing different um, plans. And so you have to address that. Well, and it brings to mind also the prevention portion of healthcare. There mm-hmm. there's different strategies, you know, that could be given if we had that cultural competence that we're not seeing being played out or being executed when we're thinking about how do we best reach this community and if we're trying to use that cookie cutter the default being white middle class families or women or men or children, that's not going to fit for every community. Right. And we have to acknowledge that and be able to shift in a dynamic Um, environment to make sure that we're reaching everybody who needs to get that message and get that preventative care. Yeah, to be able to 
here in Hawaii, I've noticed that I've eaten a lot of spam and rice. Right? <laughs> and so it's like um, I'm eating this salty, cheap meat and a lot of rice, and it's piled on every plate. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, you can get a side of rice, and you can get you some masubi at gas stations and everywhere around this island. And so if I want to talk about like preventing diabetes, or if I want to talk about hypertension or weight maintenance, being in Hawaii, I should be culturally relevant and understand that that's what they have access to. This is what they've been raised on. And so being able to have that conversation in a language that they understand, that's not patronizing, that's not like, again, demonizing them for their culture. That will help me get infinitely further with a Hawaiian community than it would if I didn't have that understanding. You know, that the dietary needs really brings to mind, you know, we, we want fresh fruits and vegetables and all of that. Well, if you're talking about an inner city community where the closest, you know, outlet to groceries is, you know, that corner store, liquor store slash, you know, uh, little store on the corner there you're not going to have the access to the fresh fruits and vegetables that somebody in a middle-class neighborhood with like a Whole Foods or, you know, a grocery store is going to have. So again, systemically, like that's where it becomes like you're now talking about a systemic issue of racism where you have vast deserts and places where you have sectioned off people of color and say, this is the area you have to live in. Then you disinvest from it, right? You don't put money into the community. You don't put small business investments into the community and you build infrastructure elsewhere. You build better schools and magnet schools and charter schools elsewhere. And then you redline the black community and say, it's not valuable. This is where you have to stay. And this is where you have to go to school. I'm not going to give you a loan or opportunity to go elsewhere. And so systemically, that's kind of how racism plays out. And then it trickles down into the healthcare because that's part of the system. There's overlapping systems and redundancies that you have in the military. If we go off to war and you don't bring your medical team with you, then you're not going to survive first contact. Right? If you don't bring your infantrymen with you and you don't bring your artillery, there are overlapping systems within the army that allow you to be successful, right? How you to win the war versus like in civilian life, the overlapping systems aren't designed to like improve the quality of lives of people of color, right? Some of them fight against each other. Some of them don't acknowledge that they exist, healthcare and education and like housing and resources they're all overlapping but they fight against each other and at the end of the day usually people of color are being discriminated against in all of those arenas and areas so you're now drifting off into like a whole systemic fight you know well and i think that's a good point to make that if we want to really understand the systemic issues that the black community is facing the african-american community is facing the Latino community is facing in accessing healthcare, we really do have to understand the systemic nature of racism and how those systems have been built to block access to care and not allow that access to care. And if we don't understand that as healthcare providers and some of those other stressors that have contributed to where we are right now in our society, then I think we're really doing a disservice to our patients and not really understanding that extra layer of stress that they have in their life if we're like oh just do a breathing app just go get one of the garments you know you just go out and buy one of those right that's not the case for everybody and so having realistic expectations but also knowing what your patients have access to and what are the challenges and the stressors that they may be facing that are contributing to those poor healthcare outcomes is important and valuable too and Again, that's probably like a three-hour episode that uh, we could probably get into in another time. But I want to thank you so much for being willing to share your time, your expertise, and just being so transparent in some of your own personal experiences for myself and for our listeners. And that's really, you know, finding, like you said, finding that connection and that human connection of learning and gleaning from each other and getting out of our bubble is, is so important. 
And for our listeners, we're going to list some of those research studies that you can find in our show notes. And if you have any questions or comments that you'd like us to follow up with, please list them in down in the comments section and our staff will get back to you as soon as we can. Major Gomez, what parting advice would you have to our listeners and to medical providers and mental health providers as far as developing cultural competence for themselves? I think developing cultural competence will lend you credibility. And so after I was injured and when I came back to practicing, I used to keep my helmet in my office and it would be somewhere off on the shelf somewhere. And a lot of my patients would ask me, like, what's the story with that? And I'd be okay with telling them I got shot in the head. <laughs> and this is, this is the helmet I was wearing when I got shot in the head. And so it kind of automatically, instantly melted some of the barriers that they would have in front of them about being able to talk to me about the problems and injuries. Old soldiers, young soldiers, there's an instant credibility that I already possessed because of my profession, my rank. But now he knows what it's like to be injured or he knows what it's like to experience some of these things that I'm experiencing. So maybe it's okay to talk to him. So you would do your patients and yourself a lot of service and you would provide them with bridge if you were culturally credible, right? You can't be a white provider talking to a person who is not a white provider and say like, I understand what you're going through. If you've never had that experience and you don't necessarily reveal to them that you're credible and like talking to their culture. So I would behoove you to it would behoove you to like find some credibility in your cultural relevancy in your practice. And that really is a delicate balance because on the one hand, I have seen people that kind of do that broad stroke and I'm so woke. I know all the things about this culture because I read five books about right. it and I'm applying it to every single person that fits that demographic. And right. that can get people in a lot of trouble and, mm-hmm. and discredit them. So some advice that I was given also was to come at each patient and in each encounter with a spirit of curiosity, Mm -hmm. one of being willing to listen, to hear, and to understand and not making assumptions based on past experiences that you've had with somebody that may have a similar background to that person or that patient and really being open to expanding my own paradigm of my experiences with a you know, whether it's a specific race, specific gender, specific religion, whatever that difference is, just being open to that. So, well, thank you again for your time. I look forward to seeing how the finished product comes out. Yeah, me too.